Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And here at New City, for the public reading of God's word, we use the New Living Translation, the NLT. So, John 3, 16 through 18. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Francis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. How's everybody doing in 12 degrees out there? It's crazy. Uh, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's awesome to be together with God's people this morning. Um, I never. I wonder if you've ever thought about uh, the centrality of conversations in life. I've always said relationships happen one conversation at a time, and, and those conversations aren't equal, are they? I mean, some are inconsequential. They just come and they go in, of our, in and out of our lives, but others change the very trajectory of our lives. In fact, we would say some conversations are what we would call crucial. I love the definition of a crucial conversation. I don't know if you've heard this before, but it's a discussion between two or more people where stakes are high, number one, opinions vary, and emotions run strong. You ever been in a conversation like that? I think I was in five or 10 or 20 of those this week. And, and when you're in a crucial conversation, um, there's a lot on the line and you, know, you feel those kinds of conversations and they have the capacity to change the direction of our life. And I want you to think about your life, to think about your relationships, to think about your conversations as we're talking together this morning. What do you remember about important conversations? The ones where something in your life shifted, or maybe you just began to think about something differently. Maybe somebody offered you a different perspective in a conversation, or maybe you understood yourself in a different way, or maybe even a new relationship was birthed in a conversation. Well, this morning we're continuing our series, Experiencing God, really looking at um, how to know God and how to do his will. And last week we talked about reality number one when it comes to experiencing God, that God is always at work around you, not, not just in the universe, but around you in your life. And this week we're going to look at a second reality, God pursues a relationship with you. God pursues a relationship with you. And the reality is that God's been pursuing people for a very long time, and so he's pretty good at it. Um, and maybe it's hard to imagine what that looks like for you. Maybe you can't imagine God pursuing you or having a conversation with God. That just seems like a foreign concept. Or maybe something you did at one point, but now you find yourself stuck and unable to do that. And so this morning, we're going to look at a conversation that God had with someone a long time ago. And um, the context of the conversation is John 3.16. That was the verse that Francis read this morning. It's probably maybe one of the most famous verses in all of the scriptures. It's the one that you see 
in football stadiums across America. I don't know why that is. Like people are like, I'm going to a football game. Let's put John 3.16 on a banner and, and hold it up. Um, but that's what we do in, in the NFL. Um, so, um, but we're going to see that this verse that's so famous in our culture is actually in the context of a conversation, which I think is so beautiful. It's not just Jesus giving truth, but it's Jesus in a conversation as he pursues somebody. And um, so shortly after Jesus' ministry began, uh, he's doing miracles. He does the wedding at Cana. There's other miracles happening, and and people are beginning to take notice. And we're told uh, in John chapter 3 that a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus And that's where we pick up. And I'm going to just take us this morning, beginning uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to walk all the way through this passage. And what I want us to pay attention to is, what does it look like for Jesus to pursue a relationship with Nicodemus through this conversation? Verse 1 begins this way. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish teacher, a religious leader, who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So there's this man named Nicodemus. Let's look at the context of the conversation. It says that it's after dark. What's the significance of after dark? I think there's two meanings here. One is the literal sense that it's dark outside. And in an age before electricity and light, it's really, really dark outside. And so he comes under the cover of darkness, maybe to conceal this conversation. Maybe he doesn't want to be seen having this conversation. Maybe that's just the time that he had. We don't really know. But more importantly, the second meaning of after dark, and this occurs throughout John's gospel, is John compares light to darkness, and it always refers to the spiritual condition of people. And so this phrase, after dark, is an indication that Nicodemus is coming without light without inner light, in other words, without the ability to see. And this is going to become very important as we understand this conversation and what Jesus is doing. And so as he comes without the ability to see, we understand that he's a Pharisee. Well, what is a Pharisee? There was two main groups of religious leaders during Jesus' time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there's an easy way, a very cheesy way to remember this, but it's stuck, so I'm going to teach it to you if you haven't heard this. The difference between Pharisees and the Sadducees was around the belief in the resurrection. And and the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so they were sad, you see? Did you get that? Very cheesy, but you'll, you'll remember it, I promise. So it's very significant. Nicodemus is a person who believes in the resurrection. But this is the deal that he believes that Jews will experience the resurrected life because of their affiliation with the people of God. And this is the significant part, that they will experience resurrection life at the end of time. And so Nicodemus does not believe that you can experience a resurrection life in the present. That's going to be uh, important. So hold on um, to that context Well, he comes and he shows a sign of respect. We know this because he calls Jesus rabbi. So he's not coming as a naysayer. He's not coming as a critic. He's coming with curiosity. And we'll see this as he comes with lots of questions. But he stops short of coming anywhere close to acknowledging who Jesus actually is. And we know this because of what he says next. He says, we believe God has sent you, but for what purpose in what way? 
um, it's not clear. And he says, your miraculous signs are an evidence that God is with you. In other words, like everybody else in the, in the culture at the time, he's seeing the wedding at Cana, he's seeing the miracles happening, and he's seeing like something unique is taking place here that defies my categories of what God does. I've never seen anything like this. I see what you are doing. That's what he says. But you, you got to understand that, G, that Nicodemus acknowledging the miracles of Jesus and saying, I see what you're doing is really just a conversation starter. It's just a jumping off point. I, I see this crazy stuff. You're turning water into wine. You're healing people. I'm not sure what it's about. It's a conversation starter. It's not a sign of belief. And so Nicodemus, we see, is a very conflicted and confused person. And maybe some of you resonate with that today. I think there's some of us sitting here in the room and some of us who have friends and family members who are in this very place with Jesus of like, I, I see that there's something unique in the story of Jesus there's something that draws me, that compels me, but I'm going to stop short of belief. And that's exactly where Nicodemus is. Verse 3, Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And in this moment, we see this conversation turn. And it turns from Nicodemus being in the driver's seat to Jesus taking definitive charge of the conversation when he says the powerful line, I tell you the truth. He's saying, I'm the one who has the truth. I'm the one that's going to tell you who's really, what's really going on and who I really am. And you can imagine that Nicodemus as a leader and as a scholar and as, as someone in charge of the religious people of his time um, is thinking, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to tell me the truth? That's my job. And so Jesus escalates this conversation, and here's what he's really saying. I'm the one telling the truth here. You don't see anything. Nicodemus has said, I see the miracles you're doing. Jesus is about to say, you don't see anything. He dramatically shifts the conversation when he uses the words born again. And he says, if you want, um, if you, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Again, and the root word here for born again is, is basically regenerated. And that's the word I want you to camp on as we're moving through this text this morning. Jesus is saying, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to see God's power, if, if you want to, be, to see what life looks like when God is in charge, then you have to be regenerated. And he's saying, you actually cannot see because you have to be regenerated to, to see. And so this is a conversation about regeneration, which is a requirement for a relationship with God. And um, here's what regeneration means. And there's a lot of directions you could take this definition. I actually love the biological understanding of regeneration. So in medical terms, uh, regeneration means the process of replacing or restoring damaged or missing cells, tissues, organs, and even entire body parts to full function. And so what Jesus is saying is if you want to experience God, you must be regenerated. In other words, you must be fully restored in a holistic way. This is the business that God is in, restoring people spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically to full function. And it's really important as we're talking about resurrection that we understand first and foremost, this is a physical reality, that you physically must be re resurrected, regenerated, made new, 
but that you'll be made new, brought to full function, to whole, wholeheartedness in your entire being. And remember, Nicodemus believes in that, but he believes that that's at the end of time. And so Jesus is saying, but you can't even see what's going on in your own life unless you're regenerated right now. And so very confused in verse 4, Nicodemus asks a second question. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And so you see that Nicodemus's categories are being challenged here. The only way that he can understand is, is, is a physical birth of a baby, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. But you see, he's asking a question. This is so important that when we come to God and when we're pursuing God, we must come with questions. And some of you sitting here today have questions. You have questions. You don't have it quite figured out. And and you've convinced yourself that the church is the last place that you should come and ask your question because you think, well, maybe I should already believe and I shouldn't have any questions and that's doubt. But listen, if we want to see, we come with the right posture and the right posture is, is a question. But we see here that Nicodemus doesn't see and he doesn't understand the categories, much less the content of what Jesus is talking about. And for some of you here this morning, God wants to meet you where you are. He wants you to encounter him because he's pursuing relationship with you. But in order for him to meet you, he's going to have to defy some of your categories. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but you need to sit with the reality that God is not limited by your categories. And maybe that's your categorical understanding of yourself. Maybe that's your understanding of the church. Maybe that's your understanding of who God is that's born out of your story and experiences that you've had. But you see, Jesus is defying Nicodemus's categories, and so he does the same with us. Well, Jesus replies in verse 5, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. What in the world does Jesus mean? He's taking, he's saying, you must be regenerated. We've got that. Nicodemus is confused. What do you mean? I have to be regenerated. I have to be born again. And then he takes it further and he says that you must be born of two things, the water and the spirit. What is he talking about? Well, to understand it, we have to understand some Old Testament context. And so remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. The background of his faith, of his understanding of God, a category he would have understood is the stories of the Old Testament text of God's people throughout history. And one of those stories comes from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet in chapter 36, verses 25 through 28. And Ezekiel has a vision that he's in a valley of dry bones. So you imagine like just death everywhere. There's just bones everywhere and it's dusty and it's dead and there's no water, there's no life. And he has this vision of God doing something, of initiating something and of those dry bones actually coming to life. And what is that a picture of? It's a picture of regeneration. And so here's what Jesus is doing in such a powerful way. He's meeting Nicodemus in a category that he can understand. 
Because Nicodemus knew this story, but Jesus is saying, but you don't see things correctly. You don't even see the stories that you've memorized correctly. And I'm going to bring one of those stories to mind. It's the story of Ezekiel. And I'm going to read this to you to understand uh, what it means when it says you must be born of water and spirit if you're to be regenerated. Uh, Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, says the Lord, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So what is, what is he saying here? He's saying, this is so important, that it's God who initiates all regeneration efforts in our lives, is that we cannot fix ourselves and then come to God and say, okay, now God, I'm ready. I'm ready for you. I'm ready for a relationship with you. In the Old Testament, water always signifies a cleansing from impurity, and that's what you see in this text in Ezekiel. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. So the first action that takes place when God regenerates our hearts is that he cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. And that's not an act um, that you do, that you initiate, that you you start in your own life. And that's so important because some of you sitting here this morning actually believe that. I meet so many people and have so many conversations that say, you know what, I'm just, I, I just got to get my act together. You know, my life is a mess. I just, I just need to stop doing this one thing, and, and, and I, just, I need to get things together in my life, and then I'll be ready to engage with God. But you see, that's not how it works, and that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. He's saying, number one, God must cleanse you with water. Um, number two, he says that... Uh, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. So you must be born of water, the cleansing work of God, and you must be born of the spirit. And so if the water signifies cleansing from impurity, the spirit depicts the transformation of the heart that will enable God's people uh, to follow him wholeheartedly. And we keep talking about this wholehearted idea that the goal in the life with Jesus is to follow him with everything that we are. But if we're to do that, God has to initiate an action in our life. And then verse eight, he concludes, the spirit blows where it wants. And so we're reminded once again that we don't choose where God shows up. Nicodemus came to, to Jesus in the dark of the night, and I don't think he knew what to expect there. I don't think he expected for his categories of faith to be shattered in that moment. You see, we don't get to choose those moments. We just have to be alive and aware and ready when they come to us. Verse 9, Nicodemus continues in his confusion. How are these things possible? It's another question. It's another indication. His worldview has been shattered. And so Jesus replies in verse 10, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. In other words, you should understand. You should understand this story. You should understand the text in Ezekiel that it's God who cleanses. It's God's spirit who gives you a new heart. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. 
And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So what, what's going on here? Remember, the question for us this morning is, uh, what does it look like for God to pursue a relationship with us? And we're looking at this example of Nicodemus, this man who comes to Jesus with all his questions and his worldview and his understanding of God. And the first thing he does is, is Jesus shatters his category and gives him this image of birth and says, Nicodemus, it's not you that initiates, it's I who initiate, it's I who cleanse, it's I whose spirit comes in you and gives you a new heart and a capacity to see that you can't have on your own. But he's still confused. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And so Jesus, again, meeting him where he is, offers a second way for Nicodemus to understand what it means to see. What is it that God is trying to do? And so he gives this story of Moses lifting up a snake in the desert. And if you remember in the Old Testament, when the, uh, the people of God, the Israelites, were wandering in the wilderness... Um, they were rebellious continually. God kept meeting their needs. He kept feeding them with manna. He kept guiding them and promising them that, that the promised land was coming. And then there was a moment when they rebelled against him. And in Numbers chapter 21, the text says this, but the people grew impatient with the long journey and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. And then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole, and all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole, and then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. So imagine in, in your mind's eye, the people of God rebelling against God in the wilderness, and so they get the just consequence for the rebellion, which is always death. That's the consequence for rebelling against God, and God sends these poisonous snakes, and they begin to bite people, and people get sick, and they die, and then God initiates action, because God's action is always to make a way that people would move from death to life. And in this case, he does this strange thing. He tells Moses, um, like, make uh, an image of a snake and put it on a pole and hold the pole up. And so what is this? This is an image of death being held up, and it says that whoever would look up at the snake and, and look up at the death and believe in God and believe that he could heal them, would not die, but would live. And, and we're told that what happens is the people that looked up at the pole actually moved from death into life. And so Nicodemus, again, would have known this story, but you see, he didn't understand it. He didn't see. Why? Because he hadn't yet been regenerated. And this is exactly what Jesus is inviting him into. And so he shows them this image and then he continues, and this is where we get to John 3.16, our, our, our verse that's, you know, hung on banners everywhere um, while we watch football. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. 
And so he tells Nicodemus the story of the snake. Nicodemus doesn't understand. And then he says, listen, remember, God loved the world and he sent his one and only son. And he's referring, of course, to himself, but Nicodemus doesn't yet get it. You know, a few weeks ago, we celebrated um, Martin Luther King Day. And did you know that in 1954, in the opening sermon, uh, when, when Dr. King was only 25 years old at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, he preached a sermon on John 3, 16 through 18, and he said this about this verse. He said, God so loved the world that he gave. God's love is self-giving and spontaneous. Nobody commanded God to give his love. It is just God's nature to give. God's gift to man was given not because God was asked to give it, but because he wanted to give it. Man didn't even ask for it. So it is with God's love. Can't you see what the hymn writer meant when he said, we're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my all and all. And this is exactly what Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, God loved the world. God has sent me into the world. Somehow, the way that I'm offering you this regenerated life is, is somehow related to this story in Numbers 21 of a snake lifted up on a pole. It's somehow related to this idea in the text of Ezekiel that it's I who have to cleanse you and it's I who have to put a heart of flesh into you. But Nicodemus doesn't get it and the conversation ends at that point. I want us to fast forward in the story and at the end of John's gospel and John 19, we have the story of the crucifixion. And so Jesus has gone to Calvary and and he's been pierced and he's hung on the cross for six hours. And the scripture says that he cried out with his last breath, it is finished and he died. And then if we fast forward in that story as he hung on that pole, The scriptures tell us that Nicodemus was there. In John chapter 19, we see Nicodemus is there at the foot of the cross. And I want to invite you into looking at an image of this. This is Michelangelo's rendering of Nicodemus carrying the broken body of Jesus. And this Nicodemus, who'd had this conversation, who came with his questions, who came with his worldview, who came not understanding what was happening, At the end of the story, there he is. And I imagine that as he looks up at Jesus' body on that cross, and and it says that he's one of the people who took Jesus' body down, and he's one of the people who wrapped him in the spices in in the burial cloths and took him to the tomb. And I can't help but wonder that in that moment, he was thinking back on this conversation. And all of a sudden, it made sense. The snake lifted up on the pole. Those who would look up at the death, the sacrifice that God provided, and if they would believe that they would move from death to life, that they would be washed clean, that they would be regenerated, that they would be given a new heart of flesh and not stone. And in that moment, Nicodemus surely understood. You see, in that moment, he saw for the first time Here's the reality. I don't know where you are with Jesus right now, but he is pursuing a love relationship with you. And he's inviting you 
The same way he invited Nicodemus. He's inviting you out of your story and into his story. And he's inviting you to come with your questions and your experiences and your categories and your view of God. And he wants you to meet him at the cross, just like Nicodemus, to see his perfect provision that you would have life and that you would have it for the, to the full. Here's the deal, guys. Jesus is inviting you into a crucial conversation. But the question is, will you engage him? Do you know how? And some of you might wonder this morning, Gabe, I don't know how to have a conversation with God. That's so compelling because I know that I can't see. I know there's something missing in my life. Maybe I've been following Jesus for a long time, but I've lost sight of him. And I don't know how to talk to him. I don't know how to meet him. I don't know what it looks like for him to regenerate me, to give me a whole heart that I could follow him. Well, I want to invite my friend um, Nick Schreiber to come up. And Nick is going to lead us as we conclude our service today, um, by talking about how to have a conversation with God. How do we have crucial conversations with God? Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks, Gabe. Good morning, everybody. Um, You know, with the way Gabe set this time up, in, in some ways, a crucial conversation with God is as simple as just bending your heart towards him and talking to him. And I love the way that our, our Lord meets us is that he makes it as simple as possible because it's all about a relationship. Because he's real, because he speaks, he hears, he's here. Um, you know, in some ways, the more we envision that relationship being like how I would talk to one of you or each other. You know, but I love this idea of a crucial conversation because anytime we step into a moment where we hear God's word, proclaimed, or even when you're at home and you get to sit and read God's word, you're interacting with his voice. And, and we're trying really hard in these moments to create margin for us to, to be able to ask, I think, the appropriate questions whenever you're in those moments where you hear God's word proclaimed or you're reading God's word, you're, you're getting to get this vision of Jesus to go, Lord, how, what are you trying to teach me? What are you inviting me to see? And I love the fact that I mean, we believe that every one of us, myself included, we're here on purpose. No, no one's here by accident. And when God's word is proclaimed, he's speaking directly to you, and he's pursuing each one of us intentionally for that love relationship right now. And so I guess in these last few moments, the way I'd love to just bend your hearts a little bit or just kind of give you some things to reflect on is I do, I do see in this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus um, these invitations that Jesus is giving to, to Nicodemus. And I think the core invitation is an invitation to see him. And, and or another way to say that would be to trust him. To, to trust that he is who he says that he is and that he is who he's demonstrated himself to be. He is the one that's going to come, be lifted up, and to give his life, to show his love so that we could then have life. And so the invitation for many of us today, or some could be, the Lord might be inviting you to trust him in deeper ways and fresher ways, and maybe maybe for the first time. Because maybe like Nicodemus, you've kind of, you've come so close, but you haven't quite crossed that line to say, Lord, I give you my life. I believe that you are God, that you are Savior. And so I wonder if his voice might be speaking to some of your hearts right now saying, trust me. You can trust me for life. 
There's another glimpse that I think we see of Jesus through this passage is that that it's also an invitation to see him, but it's also this invitation to see his, his love and his care. I love how he meets Nicodemus right where he is. He knows everything that's going on. He knows the hurdles. He knows the questions. He knows the, the whatever he's going through, and he meets them, and he just says, hey, this is who I am, but I know you, and I want you to come. And I just think for many of us in this room, we walk in with questions, we walk in with concerns, we walk in with fears and insecurities, all those things, and Jesus might want to speak to us today and say, I know it, and I can give you the strength, and I can give you the help to meet you in all those, but you need to come to me. You need to see me as the source of that help. So I set these couple of things up to, hey, will you trust or will you listen to my voice? I can meet you through all the different things you're walking through. And so as we get ready to sing this last song, I would just invite you to just spend these moments as we sing, as, we, as we're in this space, to not leave this room without going, Lord, what are you trying to, are you inviting me to trust you deeper? Are you inviting me to, 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 to listen to your voice? Because I know you are what's going to help. I know you can meet all my needs. And so we are going to, uh, during the song, we're going to, again, not, not now, but we're going to invite you to stand. And during, while we're worshiping and standing and singing, there are going to be some of our prayer team members around. And while, we're, while people are standing, if you want to slip out and find one of them in the back, they'd love to pray with you. Because sometimes we do need help putting words to what's going on in our heart. But we know we need prayer. Or, or they would just love to pray over you. Maybe you're like, I just don't know where I'm at. They'd love to pray over you because ultimately nothing, regeneration cannot happen unless it's, God, it's from God. So ultimately we need his help in all these things. And so I would just say, is he inviting us to trust? Is he inviting us to hear? And let's stand now and let's bend our hearts towards him as we sing this closing song. And if you love prayer, we'll be around.